0: Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missyodaychicago.com. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got, got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, and so his disciples came to him and uh, came to him. "This is a remote place," they said, and it's already very late send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat but he answered you give them something to eat they said to him that would take eight months of a man's wages are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat how many loaves do you have he asked go and see when they found out they said five and two fish then jesus directed them to have the apostles Uh, to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish the number of men who had eaten were 5,000. The word
1: of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, church. As Robbie Bam said, my name is Joseph. Uh, I'm curious, do you all pronounce it around here Missio Day? Is it day? Like casual day, not Daye? I, I meet with a 70 a year old Catholic. Uh, professor at Loyola with some regularity. He knows Latin, and I, and I told him the name. He was like, Missio Dei, what, are, you, are they blending Latin and English? What is this? <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm holding strong with Missio Dei, with the correct pronunciation, the mission of God, however you pronounce it. It's really good to be here with you guys. Um, my wife, Maria, and I, and our two little ones, Mia Jane and Silas, are in the midst of uh, a significant kingdom endeavor here in the city of Chicago. So I spent the last five years as the worship pastor at a church plant in Lincoln Park. And during that time, God has formed in us a heart and a burden for the people of, uh, of this city. But having left that position last August, we are spending this year, 2019, kind of incubating with Missio Day. Uh, particularly with Wrigleyville, uh, before being sent out next year in 2020 to plant a new church in the city, much like, uh, like Bob and the rest of the Edison Park team are doing here with you guys. Uh, so while many of our friends have moved on to the suburbs or to warmer climates, and we don't begrudge them <laughs> much, uh, we, we feel God calling us to put down roots here. Uh, D.L. Moody, famous evangelist from the 19th century said that cities are the centers of influence. Water runs downhill and the highest hills in America are the great cities. If we can stir them, we will stir the whole country. That vision is giving us uh, fuel for our fire, motivation to put down roots And to partner with God in seeing his kingdom come and his will done in Chicago in a powerful way. We believe that Chicago is uniquely poised to see the kingdom of God invade in a powerful way. And then to send ripples out into the world. Amen? Amen. Anyone else see that? Uh, Incidentally, Maria and I and our kids used to live about four blocks north of here for, for almost four years and we used to walk by and come in here at Architectural Artifacts, and it's one of my favorite spots in the city. And I used to say, someday I'm going to start a church that meets in there. And Brian beat me to it, and I'm never going to forgive him for it. But uh, I just had this sense, so I, I haven't met many of you, uh, but we are kindred. Our hearts beat as one. We are, we are with you. Um, we pray that you're with us. We are, um, we are in the process of discerning where specifically in the city, which neighborhood God is sending us to. So we would covet your prayers uh, for discernment towards, towards that end. So let's, uh, let's take a look at Mark. Uh, last week, I think you guys looked at a portion of chapter 5 where uh, Mark tells of the story of the miraculous healing of Jairus' daughter and of the woman of, with the issue with blood. You guys looked at how Jesus responded to Jairus' desperation and he responded to the woman's hunger. And bam, As Bam so eloquently put it, hunger punches desperation in the mouth. But Jesus has compassion for both desperation and for hunger. Well, today we're looking at the story of the miraculous feeding of the crowd from Mark chapter 6. Uh, so in order to understand all that's going on here, we have to kind of back up a little bit to a portion in chapter 6 that we, that we, we didn't have read out loud, but it, it gives us some of the broader context that plays directly into the significance of this, of this miracle. So hot on the heels of the miraculous healings that we looked at last week, we see Jesus commissioning the 12 to go out into the towns and villages of Galilee uh, on their own for the first time. So this is essentially initiating the second phase of Jesus' public ministry. Up until now, Jesus has been, he's been instructing the twelve. He's been showing them what can be done in the power of the Spirit. And he's been instilling in them the keys of the kingdom. But lecture time is over. Now it's time to get out into the field. So Jesus has been demonstrating incredible power in the Spirit. Uh, and now it's time for them to go out as his kingdom emissaries. He had told them early on that he was going to make them fishers of men. And so it's at this point that he's starting to make good on that promise. And all the things that, John, or that Jesus rather had been doing, the things that we've been looking at week after week, miraculous healings, powerful teaching with authority that people had never seen, casting out demons, these guys are sent out and they do all of the same things. It had to be absolutely thrilling for them. The Greek uh, word for the sending of the 12 is apostelline, from which we get the, the term apostle, which means sent one. So Jesus is increasingly empowering and then releasing his apprentices to do the same things that he has been doing. The Latin equivalent of apostelline Is where the term missio is derived from. Missio is the mission of Jesus. So, this sending, this mission, it's embedded in our name, Missio Dei. And if we are going to be Jesus' followers, his apprentices, he is going to increasingly empower us and release us to do the same things that he has been doing. Are you open to that? Are you living in that reality? So immediately after sending the 12 into the villages of Galilee, which is kind of a a sparsely populated, kind of backwoods area of Israel, right after the sending of the 12, Mark tells us about the gruesome murder of Jesus' cousin, the prophet John the Baptist, at the hands of the Roman governor of Galilee, Herod Antipas. As you read it in the, in the flow of the story, it seems like a little bit of a digression. It seems a little bit random, but there's two points that Mark is making that are relevant to the text, for our text today. For one, Mark is highlighting the fact that this sending, this mission, and the entire ministry of Jesus is taking place under the ever-present looming threat of conflict and violence. So John the Baptist, he's a prophet. He spoke out against the powers that be and he was unceremoniously beheaded in a dank prison, alone and undignified. And the 12 who are going out as emissaries of this invading kingdom, they're carrying a message every bit as powerful and potent and revolutionary as John's. And it brings with them significant risk and threat. And for Jesus, it's hitting very close to home as his cousin. And in some ways, his kind of ministry mentor is executed in cold blood. So the first thing is the looming threat for these guys as they're sent out. The second is Mark is showing the abdication of leadership of Israel's leaders. So abdication, I don't know if you're familiar with this word. It means the failure to fulfill one's duty. So he's already been showing us the failure of the the religious leaders the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And in this story about the the beheading of John the Baptist, he's showing the failure of Israel's political leaders as well. Herod Antipas was too busy drinking at parties and lusting after his sister-in-law and his niece and beheading prophets to fulfill his, his mandated responsibility to care for the people. So our text today is showing Jesus' compassionate leadership, and it's meant to draw a stark contrast with the abdication of leadership of Israel's leaders. And so we come to Mark 6, verse 30. So the apostles are returning from their ministry tour. They were out for days or weeks. We don't know exactly how long, but they're most likely leading up back in Capernaum, which acted sort of as a home base for Jesus' ministry. So with a backdrop of the execution of John and the successful but exhausting ministry tour and with crowds descending on them, flocking to them by the hundreds and by the thousands, Jesus recognizes the need to get away. So he grabs his guys, puts them in a boat, puts out onto the lake in hunt of a solitary place where they can, they can get some well-deserved and R. Now the Sea of Galilee, it's it's called a sea, but it's really just a lake. And the crowds who are flocking to Capernaum, they watch from the shore. They're so desperate to be near to Jesus and near to the twelve that they watch where they're going and they run out along the shore and beat them to their landing spot. This is basically what we would call stalking. Mark puts the number of people at 5,000 men, but Matthew, in his gospel, he mentions that there were also women and children in the crowds. So we're probably talking about at least 10,000 people streaming from the towns and villages of Galilee, where the 12, by the way, had just returned. So they saw the 12 casting out demons, performing miracles, preaching about repentance and authority, and they're like, I need more of that. And so they're descending on Capernaum, It's probably 10 times the population of Capernaum. And I wonder if you're the 12 or if you're Jesus, how would you respond in that moment? Maybe a little bit like they did. They said to Jesus, This is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away. Can you blame them? They're tired. Now they're probably annoyed. They've been go, go, going nonstop for who knows how long. In chapter 3, we saw that Jesus and his disciples, they often missed meals. They didn't even have an opportunity to eat because the people were clamoring for what they were offering. And so they're at the end of this tour. They've been hiking from village to village. They've been giving of themselves, healing people and preaching, and they can't get away. For me, as an Enneagram type 5 and as an introvert... This is pretty much my worst nightmare. <laughs> type fives and INTJs on the Myers-Briggs are, are famously antisocial and easily depleted by people. Any other type fives? Any other, any other INTJs on the Myers-Briggs? Let's consider for a moment uh, the, this list of famous type fives and INTJs. I defy you to find a list more stacked with pleasant and winsome social butterflies than this. Ebenezer Scrooge, Mr. Burns, Ted Kaczynski and Timothy McVeigh, Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin, Walter White and Gustavo Fring, Hannibal Lecter, Emperor Palpatine, and Donald Rumsfeld, just for good measure. So if I'm one of the 12 here, Mr. Introverted INTJ, You better keep sharp objects away from me at this point. Just get me a hole to crawl into. But I bet many of us shrink back in this moment if we're one of the 12. I mean, have you ever had a major project you were responsible for where you had to push and push and push to get it done, and finally, it's finished. You're done. What do you want to do? You want to take a vacation. You want to get a break. You want a chance to breathe. And these guys were doing ministry. So if anybody is justified in wanting to get away, wanting some time to themselves, isn't it them? And then think about Jesus. He had just found out that his cousin had been unjustly executed. So for Jesus, there's grief upon top, on top of exhaustion. Matthew's gospel includes that detail. But instead of getting away by themselves, to debrief and recharge. They are met by 10,000 people. Well, I want us to look at two aspects of their response, of the 12's response, to Jesus and to the crowds. And one aspect of their response, I think, kind of sums up pretty typical human nature in this kind of demanding situation. And another aspect of their response that just humbly admits one's shortfall of resources. So these two aspects of them saying, in essence, first of all, let someone else deal with it. And second, what do I have to give? So the first part of their response is, let someone else deal with it. They try to shift responsibility. They say, this is not my problem. I didn't create this mess. Why should I have to clean it up? There is something in human nature that in a moment of need or crisis, it chooses, or at least it tries, to pass the buck. In his uh, seminal work, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the bystander effect. Are you guys familiar with this? He cites in his book one of the most infamous crimes in New York City history, the 1964 stabbing death of a young Queens woman. The young young woman was chased by her attacker and attacked three times on the street over the course of half an hour as 38 of her neighbors watched from their windows. None of them called the police. Abe Rosenthal, who would later become the editor of the New York Times, he wrote about this in his book about the case. He said, nobody can say why the 38 did not lift the phone while Miss Genovese was being attacked since they cannot say themselves. It can be assumed, however, that their apathy was indeed one of the big city variety. It is almost a matter of psychological survival if one is surrounded and pressed by millions of people to prevent them from constantly impinging on you. And the only way to do this is to ignore them as often as possible. Indifference to one's neighbor and his troubles is a conditioned reflex in life in New York as it is in other big cities." Sound familiar to anyone else? The anonymity and the alienation of big city life make people hard and closed and unfeeling. I think we all understand this intuitively. But Mr. Gladwell, he goes on to write that the truth about what happened in this horrible stabbing turned out to be a little bit more complicated. Two New York City psychologists conducted a series of studies to try to understand what they came to to dub the bystander problem. So they staged emergencies of one kind or another in different situations in order to see who would come and help. And what they observed through their experiments is that when people are in a group, responsibility for acting is diffused. They assume that someone else will make the call, or they assume that because no one else is acting, the apparent problem isn't really a problem. And so the disciples, they say to Jesus, send the people away. They say, let someone else deal with it. The second aspect of their response is, what do I have to give? So one of them quickly tabulated the amount of money it would take to feed this massive crowd. And they quickly and obviously see that they don't have the resources. It's something like two years worth of of wages. Verse 38 suggests that the, the food that they scrounged together, it wasn't even enough to feed themselves. Five loaves and two fish. And these loaves, by the way, are probably more like what we would call dinner rolls. And John, in his gospel, he includes the detail that they're barley loaves, which is indicating something about their quality. Barley bread was for the poor. And these fish, these two fish, they're probably more like like sardines, dried and salted as traveling rations. So they've got five dinner rolls and two little snack sardines. And so in humility, they rightly admit they don't have much to offer here in the face of this overwhelming need. So the the response of of the 12 is, let someone else deal with it, and what do I have to give? But whereas the disciples try to pass the buck, exhausted as they may rightly be, And though they have to truthfully admit their ridiculous shortfall of resources to meet the need, Mark says that by contrast, Jesus looked at the crowd as he's on the boat. He wants to get away, and here's 10,000 people ready to meet him. It says he looked on them, and he had compassion on them, because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now this language, sheep without a shepherd, it's not just a pastoral metaphor that Mark has made up here. This expression, sheep without a shepherd, it's found several other places in the Old Testament. It's an idiom that gets some play throughout the the course of the prophets in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, sheep without a shepherd is really expressing two things. First of all, it's expressing God's loving compassion for his people. And second, It's expressing an indictment against Israel's leaders for their failure to lead well. But under that, under those two things, compassion and indictment, it resounds with God's promise that he himself will come to protect and to guide and to vindicate his leaderless people. And Jesus is the embodiment of that promise. We're going to look here at a moment in in a moment, at Ezekiel's words that capture this heart and this promise. So in Ezekiel 4, 34 rather, we see what Mark is invoking here by the use of this language of sheep without a shepherd. We're going to read it here from the message translation. So Ezekiel says, Son of man, this is actually God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherd leaders of Israel. Yes, prophesy. Tell those shepherds, God the Master says, Doomed to you shepherds of Israel, feeding your own mouths. Aren't shepherds supposed to feed sheep? You drink the milk, you make clothes from the wool, you roast the lambs, but you don't feed the sheep. You don't build up the weak ones, you don't heal the sick, don't doctor the injured, don't go after the strays, don't look after the lost. You bully and badger them, and now they're scattered every which way because there was no shepherd Scattered and easy pickings for wolves and coyotes. Scattered, my sheep, exposed and vulnerable across mountains and hills. My sheep scattered all over the world and no one looking out for them. Therefore, shepherds, listen to the message of God as surely as I am the living God. Because my sheep have been turned into mere prey, into easy meals for wolves, because you shepherds ignored them and only fed yourselves, listen to what God has to say watch out, I'm coming down on the shepherds and I'm taking my sheep back. They're fired as shepherds of my sheep. No more shepherds who just feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep from their greed. They're not gonna feed my sheep any longer. So Mark is invoking Ezekiel's prophetic indictment of Israel's corrupt and debased leaders. And he's subtly suggesting that Israel's government leaders, Herod Antipas and his father Herod the Great before him, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had utterly failed in their leadership, and God was coming against them in judgment. I wonder what it would be like to live in a time where one's government leaders willfully forfeited their leadership. I wonder what it would be like to live in a time where one's government leaders greedily lined their own pockets while letting their own people languish and suffer, where they bullied and badgered their people, especially the poorest and most vulnerable among them. I can't imagine what that would be like, can you? I certainly can't imagine what it would be like to live in a time where the trusted voices of spiritual leadership, where the church leaders were given over to corruption and abuse, of all kinds, leaving the people they were supposed to care for vulnerable, exposed, left to starve and to grope in the dark. Sounds awful, doesn't it? God's indictment by the hand of Ezekiel, it obviously hits close to home for all of us. But Jesus came to fulfill God's promise that he would take the sheep back from their depraved leaders and he would care for them himself. He promised he would search for the lost. He would bring back the strays. He would bind up the injured and the poor, and he would strengthen the weak. And in this story, Jesus is fulfilling that. Do you remember Isaiah 61? Early, 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 the first days of Jesus' ministry, he stood up in the Nazareth synagogue. He read from Isaiah 61 about about proclaiming good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and setting the oppressed free. These were the things that Jesus was on about from the beginning. These are the same things that Jesus is on about in our world today. This is his missio. It's the work he is empowering and releasing his apprentices to carry on in the world. And it's fueled by God's endless wellspring of compassion for his people. And it's fueled by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, seeing the people desperately seeking him out, like sheep without a shepherd, these 10,000 people now hungry and listless, he says to his apprentices, you feed them. He knows, of course. They don't have the resources to carry it out. And so Jesus commences to demonstrate one of the most powerful displays of miraculous power that the world has ever seen. This is the only miracle story that's included in all four gospel stories. So it very clearly made a strong impression on the early church. And whereas many of the other miracle stories in the Gospels, they include descriptions of people's shocked or awed reactions. We don't get any of that here. It's as if Mark understands that the raw details of what Jesus does here are laden with enough shock and awe on their own. Now, biblically observant readers are meant to notice the parallels between what Jesus is about to do here and what two of Israel's most renowned prophets had done in their day in the face of hunger and need. In 1, uh, 1 Kings rather 17, we find the story of the great prophet Elijah. He's providing for a poor widow and her son by miraculously multiplying minuscule amounts of oil and flour over and over and over, providing them with bread to sustain them for weeks. And then in 2 Kings 4, Elijah's protege, Elisha, miraculously feeds a hundred people with ten loaves of bread. So the parallels are obvious, but Jesus far surpassing the work of these great prophets is even more obvious. Jesus' miracle makes theirs seem almost trivial by comparison. The world has never seen anyone like Jesus of Nazareth. But before he gets to it, Jesus tells his apprentices, these these 12 guys, to divide up the people into groups of 50s and 100s, kind of like dinner party groups. So if you're one of the 12 at this point, not only are you exhausted and probably more than a little bit annoyed, now you're probably just thoroughly confused. Why are we dividing them up? Maybe, maybe you have the presence of mind as you're carrying out his instruction to notice, hmm, Groups of fifties and hundreds. Just like how Moses divided up the people in the wilderness, in the exodus from Egypt. Huh. We're in the wilderness too. But you certainly don't see in that moment what Mark is showing all of us, that Jesus is like a new Moses, and that they are in the midst of a new kind of exodus. Jesus is deliberately retelling and reenacting history In real time, we, with the benefit of hindsight, can see these parallels, but for them, I bet all they felt was confused and annoyed with this kind of mounting social, awkward social pressure as they carry out Jesus' instruction to divide the people up. All eyes are looking at them. What are we doing? And then Jesus looks up to heaven. He gives thanks And he begins breaking and passing, breaking and passing. Who knows how long it took before the whispers started to spread through the crowd. Are you seeing this? Who knows how long before the 12 started to realize what is happening. But before too long, 10,000 people have food in their hands. And they're reclining on the green grass in the cool spring evening in their dinner party groupings, eating until they can't eat anymore. Ezekiel had prophesied just a few verses after the portion that we read a a few moments ago. Ezekiel said, I will pasture my people on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep, have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. And Jesus here is making good on that promise. All these threads of history are coming together in this moment. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. So all told, every single person present eats until they're satisfied. The poorer folks in the crowd, they probably hadn't experienced that feeling of fullness since whenever the last village wedding had been. And after everyone has eaten to their fill, the 12 go around and they collect the remnants. And each of them fills a basket with leftovers. The abundance of God's provision is incredible the promises of God to his people are yes and amen in Jesus in Jesus they are realized they are brought to bear on human history these were words given by prophets from centuries ago and in this moment we see that they are being brought to bear on real lives and real needs of real people this is the kingdom breaking in it's breaking in today These are the same promises that are yes and amen for us. I want to tease out just a couple of implications from this story for us to consider. First, an implication specifically for leaders. And what I mean by leader is anyone with a direct influence over other people. So I'm talking about people in management, in their workplace. I'm talking about business owners. I'm talking about bloggers or photographers with any kind of following. I'm talking about anybody in here who might work in government, anybody uh, who's a teacher, anybody who helps oversee a family, especially ministry leaders. All of you who have direct influence over others. The word for you is the same as it was for the Apostle Peter, the same as it's always been for leaders over the people that God loves. Feed his sheep. So recall to mind God's heart and his, from the words of Ezekiel, his words of indictment and judgment against those who had abdicated their influence, who leveraged their leadership for personal gain. Are you who lead? Are you who influence others? Are you leveraging your influence for the benefit of those under you, especially the most vulnerable? Are you cashing in your social capital to improve the lives of others. Are you leading like Jesus who says, who as it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So in actively living into this kind of Jesus-y mode of leadership, you will time and time again come right up against your finite resources. The godly leader will inevitably be called to lead through circumstances and through situations that require more than what the leader has in their own hands, have in their heads. You will find yourself saying over and over again, what do I have to give? If you do, if you find yourself saying that, take heart, you are very likely exactly where God wants you to be. If, we, if you will, instead of using that as a cop-out, if you will instead lean in, you will discover over and over that the shortfall of your own resources opens up the possibility of drawing upon God's infinite resources. Amen. By the Holy Spirit, we have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that fed 10,000 people with some dinner rolls and sardines. It doesn't mean that God is always going to work a magic trick, but it means as we deepen in our intimacy with the Father, as we walk in step with the Spirit, as we step out and as we risk looking foolish, we will be able to draw upon the supernatural resources that go far beyond our own limited capacities. So, for leaders, for godly leaders... There is no place for a scarcity mentality. Yes, in many cases, all we have are fishes and loaves. The disciples, it's all they had. They had to humbly admit it. But if we humbly offer what we have to Jesus, we will get the opportunity to see him do infinitely more. Things that are, that are infinitely greater than the sum of those parts. He will use us leaders perhaps to feed multitudes, at least figuratively, if not literally. And so, my word is to lead as one fueled by God's compassionate heart for the children that he loves. Leverage your influence. Feed his sheep. Second, let's consider the disciples' first response and what it suggests for some others of us. The disciples, as we said, wanted to send the people away to make it someone else's problem to deal with. To act on that impulse, this is the essence of privilege. And to act on it over and over and over again is to build a life of privilege. As my prophetic friend Bam Stanton once said, privilege is the ability to walk away. I think many of us here need to reckon with our privilege. By the way, do you all recognize what a a gift Bam and his family are to this church? I love you, man. I honor you. I'm deeply grateful for your influence, for your experience, for your voice. Keep doing what you do, man. Our church needs your voice. I want to humbly suggest that many of us in this room... Have, been, have built deeply formed habits of walking away and passing the buck. But to walk away and to say, someone else will deal with that, or I didn't make this mess, why should I have to clean it up, is to miss out on some of Jesus' best work. It gets complicated for us 21st century creatures where we are inundated by a constant stream of all of the crises and tragedies and depravities of human existence all around the world. But I don't believe God is calling us to fix the world's problems. We've got to trust that He's got the whole world in His hands. I believe He's calling us to look at the problems right in front of us, the situations and the needs that we are exposed to right in the middle of our daily circumstances. Maria and I are in the very early stages of reckoning with our own privilege as white folks in America Inheritors of a national history that is severely bent in our favor, affording us the freedom to walk away, to not have to think about race or class or poverty except when we willingly choose to do so. I'm very early on in this journey of waking up to my own privilege, so I, I can't presume to offer anything here as an authority. I just know that as I read this story, as I put myself in the shoes of these apprentices, of Jesus, my knee-jerk reaction which is steeped in privilege is to retreat and take care of myself in this moment. I'm forced to consider my own deeply ingrained habits of walking away. I'm forced to consider the myriad social and financial safety nets that have built, built into my existence as a white man in America. That I've inherited a vast fortune of material and social privilege, while others have been robbed of their God given humanity. So I think it would be good to let the words of the Apostle Paul be the final word on this particular point. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Let them go to God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage to do good, to be rich in helping others to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build up a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. So I think many of us here need to begin or to continue reckoning with our privilege so that we can be more and more free to live in the radical and radically generous way of Jesus. And finally, a word for all of us. Allow God to expand your boundaries. The book Boundaries, How to Say Yes and When to Say No to Take Control of Your Lives by Drs. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, it's it's sold something like 2 million copies in the last 25 years. Any Boundaries fans? Anybody? Yeah? Careful. (laughs) The philosophy of this book has, it's it's proven very influential in the evangelical world, world over the last couple decades. And having read it myself and having lived with its philosophy for some time, I can recognize that it holds some truly powerful and necessary wisdom, particularly for those who are stuck in codependent or abusive relationships. But like all truth and wisdom, it can be taken too far. And it can can become twisted to mean or to become something that it's not. The message of boundaries can be dangerous when it's paired with the entitled, self-help mantras of our generation. You do you. Treat yourself. You take care of you. These mantras, they are hyper-individualized and they are self-focused. And they're essentially about fortifying our personal boundaries. Hear me, church. They are not emblematic of the way of Jesus. Now, some of you in this room... You've been living in modes and habits where you you give and you give and you give of yourself until you are completely depleted. You are walked over. You are abused. You are taken for granted. Many of you may be in that place. Maybe maybe it's mothers in the room. Maybe it's you, Enneagram Type Twos. You need to hear the message of boundaries, to take care of yourself, to assert your boundaries, and to retreat with Jesus. That was what Jesus was trying to create for his guys, a retreat. There's place. There's time. It's needed. But I would guess that that is perhaps not most of the people in this room. Most of us in this room, I would bet, spend most of our time and our energy and our resources most days focusing on ourselves, making ourselves happy. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, the way of self-denial, the way of self-sacrifice. Here is the central philosophy of the way of Jesus. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So the message of learning to say no, of learning to assert your boundaries, it needs to be held in tension with this central philosophy of Jesus. The only way to find your life is to lose it. The bottom line is that discipleship, being an apprentice of Jesus, it is costly. But the vision that fuels it is that by losing your life, by sacrificing your own interests, for the sake of others, in humility, valuing others above yourself. The vision is that by doing those things, by living in that way, as Jesus did, you will find life, abundant, overflowing life. And so to that end, I believe that God wants to expand our boundaries, to become motivated by what author Daniel Pink calls Productive discomfort. So what does this look like? The Holy Spirit alone can reveal to you exactly what it might need to look like today or tomorrow or in the weeks and months to come. But here I want to offer just a few simple examples to begin to pique your imagination have a ca- candid conversation with your spouse instead of watching netflix could be a simple place to start invite your obnoxious neighbor over for a meal have a conversation with someone on the street instead of walking by them share a loving word of encouragement with a stranger on the train it's hard to do everyone's got their earphones in it, it's going to be it's going to get weird But you gotta step out. Offer to pray for a coworker. Invite a friend that's in a rough spot to join you on your family vacation. The gist here is to make yourself interruptible, to practice hospitality. It may be the most, the single most important spiritual discipline that we need to recover and practice in our day. As the writer of Hebrews says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without even realizing it. Are we living in this discipline? Are we inviting strangers?